Welcome everybody. Sorry, uh, we're starting about one minute late due to uh, some minor technical difficulties, but um, I'm thrilled that all of you are able to join us today. Um, my name is Sarah Turberville. I'm director of the Constitution Project at the Project on Government Oversight. And this is the second in our series on COVID-19 and the Constitution. Um, through this series, we're trying to gain a better understanding of the legal framework, or lack thereof in some cases, that should be guiding the government's response to the pandemic. And we also want to know if and how these restrictions present constitutional concerns and if they're really worth um, the, the risk that they pose to our constitutional values and what kinds of limits we should expect or demand from the government to adhere to once uh, as their response to this crisis unfolds. Uh, today's briefing is on surveillance, um, an incredibly timely topic. And we have some very knowledgeable folks who have joined us to answer uh, your questions. The first is Dr. Michael Osterholm, who is professor at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health and director for the Center of Infectious Disease and Research uh, infectious Disease Research and Policy. Um, we also have Greg uh, Nojime, who is a Senior Counsel at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Um, we also have Deborah Brown with us, who I believe has just uh, joined Human Rights Watch and is a surveillance expert, and our own Jake LaPeruk, who is Senior Counsel at the Constitution Project, at the Project on Government Oversight. Um, before we hand off questions to those of you on the line, um, I would like to start by maybe pitching a question to Dr. Osterholm, particularly because he can only be with us for the first half hour of our meeting today. And um, that question uh, really centers around, uh, you know, that I think we're looking at two issues when we're talking about surveillance. Um, as it res with respect to COVID-19, both surveillance to detect the spread, like in Belgium, and surveillance to detect if people are complying with social distancing. And I'm interested, maybe if you can start us off with uh, speaking to um, what surveillance measures for both of those are likely to be effective and why. And um, I'll say, I don't see Dr. Osterholm listed as a specific participant. Um, I think he might be on the phone. So before we figure that out, maybe I'll start by uh, putting that over to um, Deborah Brown. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for the invitation. Um, I think if I understood the question correctly, I was very much looking forward to Dr. Osterholm's um, enlightening <laughs> response. But I think the question was around the different types of use of location data for both contact tracing and for um, for enforcing either self-distancing measures or quarantine. Right. And the question was exactly... Is what, what do you think is likely to be effective and why here in the United States? Okay, so um, my focus is actually a bit more international, but I'm happy to try to, to give a perspective and perhaps Greg Nojum um, might be more familiar with the U.S. But I think in terms of looking at effectiveness of, of surveillance measures, it's really important to look at uh, what the technology being applied is, what data is being collected, and for what purpose. A lot of the proposals we've seen reported on, and there aren't too many details that have been explained 
tend to look at the gathering of large amounts of data without a specific purpose, without um, much detail on the time-bound nature of how it's, uh, for when it's being collected. And at this moment, there's, um, while, the, while the disease is widespread, it's not so clear how data will be used, um, how contact tracing will be effective when there aren't access, there isn't widespread access to testing and um, medical resources that people would need. Um, so if I could maybe take a step back and explain what we've seen in some other countries is different types of efforts to collect data. So whether it's um, cell site location data or um, GPS data, uh, that there's initiatives to do this in different ways. And in some cases, they are more specific, sometimes less so. But it just seems that their efforts aren't necessarily um, tailored to specific needs. So I could speak to certain countries, um, some examples that we've been looking at. But I'm wondering if Greg might want to jump in for the US specific question. That's great. Yeah, Greg, why don't you take it away for a little bit? Sure. So just to build on what Deborah said. So there's cell site location information, GPS, and then there's also Bluetooth proximity information. And the Bluetooth proximity approach has kind of um, taken off. Um, I'm not going to say that it's decided that this is the way to go, um, but it seems like there are a number of initiatives um, coming out of major universities like MIT about using Bluetooth proximity to uh, inform a person that they have been near, that means within 30 feet, of another person who has tested positive for COVID-19. Now, there are questions about each of these technologies and how effective they will be in predicting contagion. So for example, um, uh, we know the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control here in the United States, says that if you, you need to stay six feet apart from other people, um, so as not to be infected. And yet the Bluetooth range is about 30 feet. And Bluetooth signals, they go through walls. Uh, that suggests that, that relying on that technology is gonna create a lot of false positives. It also suggests that one ought to have very limited consequences for notice of proximity. So for example, you wouldn't say, um, hey, if you get notice that you've been proximate to someone who's infected, uh, you should immediately self-quarantine for 14 days, although I think some countries are doing that. Uh, you're going to have a lot of people self-quarantined who don't need to self-quarantine. You know, when we're down and we're coming um, over the slope, we're, we're going down the curve, if you will, and there are a lot fewer people who are uh, infected. Um, and you wouldn't want, for example, a mandatory quarantine based on that information. You might say to that person, hey, uh, if tests are widely available, you should go get tested. Uh, but I do think we have to uh, realize that the technology that's being discussed is over-inclusive. We're gonna have a lot of false positives and we need to calibrate the uses to which the information is put based on those technical realities. Thanks, Greg. I think that uh, Dr. Osterholm is with us on the phone. I potentially just unmuted him, so I'll- I am, thank you, I'm here. Great, great. 
Um, so might you want to uh, speak to this sort of threshold question that we have before we open up, up the line to um, the other participants who have joined us um, about the surveillance measures you think are likely to be effective and why in the U.S.? Yeah, well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And I have been on some calls, so I did, I did, I did, I did have a chance to hear the other speakers. So um, first of all, take a step back because, again, all this is going to be based on testing. And right now, the, the push for testing in the United States, I think, is really poorly understood. Number one, it's not going to happen in a way that so many people project it should or could. Um, we have terrible challenges right now getting testing as it relates to just reagents. It turned out that before Wuhan, we were supporting reagent uh, provision for a lot of these tests in kind of a garden hose. Wuhan occurred and it somewhat was between a garden hose and a fire hose, but it truly challenged the system. And including in China, which supplies a lot of the reagents. Since that time, the whole world has caught on fire. And as a result of that, everybody wants to do testing with the various different platforms. And the reagent needs have gone up, scaled up to canal water size, not garden hose. And so we've seen many locations around the country where there's been approvals for emergency use of these different platforms but they're not materializing. A good example is the Abbott point of care test that received so much publicity. We're hearing now that maybe we can see the test arrive in July or later. And so that from the standpoint, first of all, these people that I call the talking heads, and I guess I would put myself in that category, who are out there talking about this need to do all this testing. First of all, it do not have any sense of reality of what's going to actually happen. Second of all, these tests are really performing very poorly in many cases. Um, and part of the problem was, is after the CDC situation occurred with testing, where they obviously dropped the ball, we all know that the FDA had a rebound effect of saying, we got to open it up to everybody, anything under emergency authorization use. For example, just take the antibody test as one. There are now over 70 different manufacturers, companies who received emergency authorization proof. That's not saying that they had approval by FDA in the normal sense of the word, with full review. They just had to meet this 30 isolate panel kind of test. And by FDA's own acknowledgement in a meeting last week, one of them said, well, at least 35 of those 70 are just pure junk. And so we've now had this proliferation of testing out there for which it's really a challenge. And when you think about dating or, or, or linking ourselves to these kind of things you were just talking about, think about this right now, that if you take and I'm, I'm going to give you kind of a, a best case estimate here. If the prevalence of SARS-CoV in a population was about 10%, and you had a 95% specificity, 95% sensitivity, which even with the antigen test, we're not getting. We can see that much variation just on which swabs you use. If you look at that, that means that for that, you'd pick up 95,000 out of a million people that were positive. But you'd pick up 45,000 false positives, and you'd actually have 3,000 that would be false negatives. Now, that 45,000 is a pretty substantial number that are false positives. Nobody's talking about that. And the numbers get worse if you go further down into the sensitivity specificity, which we think many of these tests actually are. So the very basis upon which to even talk about Bluetooth or anything is flawed even at that point because these testing issues are huge. Antibody testing is even worse, what it means or doesn't mean. So I think that that's the challenge. The final piece I would just say is 
having been in public health for 45 years and cut my teeth in surveillance in many different ways, I don't believe most people would comply with it. I, I mean, if I got notifications that I'd been exposed to a patient with uh, you know, COVID-19, would I self-isolate for 14 days at home when I got a text on my phone? Probably not. A lot of people wouldn't. So I think the utility of that is very different than it is in China, where they actually have to move through the community with your phone hooked up to any number of different scanners that can tell exactly should I be here or not. And I can't imagine even in a timely way being able to implement that, implement that in the U.S. We wouldn't have the machines available if we even wanted to do it. So I think a lot of this is distraction when we need to really be talking about what we can do to, to tamp this down, to deal with this situation. And I just don't see any of this materializing because one, we won't have the test. Two, they're performing terribly. And when people find out these numbers, I think they're going to have second thoughts about how to use them. And number three is, I just don't think that even with Bluetooth technology kinds of things, people will comply. And uh, therefore, what is the utility of them? Thanks for that, Dr. Alstrom. I, I'd like to follow up um, and maybe maybe pitch this question to Jake about sort of the risk versus the value. So if there's such a, a high risk of, you know, getting a huge number of, of false positives with respect to the, the tests in the first instance, um, is that worth the surveillance or the benefit that we might get from um, engaging in, you know, and using these technologies to, to surveil individuals? Yeah, well, I, th I think definitely kind of looking at these efficacy issues is the first thing to take on for this, for this type of overall issue, because you know, I think there's obviously a lot of desire to do whatever we can to mitigate this crisis and to get things right. And, you know, that should require, that should entail all the box thinking, creativity. Um, but if we start going down the road of solutions that aren't actually solutions, um, there are going to be a lot of costs in terms of if we're actually effectively mitigating this pandemic and also for issues like this, um, potentially some very severe costs to civil liberties. Now, right now, most individuals are social distancing and staying at home, but as we start to move more, which is probably when you would want to kick in these types of measures, people go to lots of sensitive places. They have lots of sensitive interactions um, that we, for good reason, don't want the government to just have an open book to continuously for as long as it wants to whatever purposes it wants. That endangers a lot of civil liberties, um, first among them just privacy in and of itself. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very important to be forced kind of jumping in saying, why don't we just try this, asking the questions of, will it work? How effectively will it work? What situations do you require? Um, and then go from there to building out the very necessary guardrails for civil liberties. Um, and like, you know, has already been discussed, there are a lot of serious issues for efficacy to keep in mind. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's exactly right that testing really is paramount to this. If we don't have a robust testing system, we're not going to be able to actually follow up with contact tracing and public health surveillance measures in the basic way you'd want to, and people probably won't, um, won't trust it. If we don't, if we have this, you know, still have infections on a scale of hundreds of thousands or millions, it's not going to be possible to actually individually interactive and talk to people. Maybe you can have some sort of automated alert system sent to your phone or something like that. But, um, you know, that's going to probably not be taken as seriously. And that's going to create the issues Greg was talking about. If people might think, oh, well, this is just because, you know, my neighbor 
clipped to my phone through my wall or something like that. Um, you know, and there are, there are a lot of good reasons why people might not take it seriously if there's not some individualized follow-up to check, you know, if these contacts were legitimate um, and to impress upon people when they were. I think um, another point that I would want to add on this is I think we should also be especially skeptical of measures that we've only seen a surface level discussion of. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of details that need to be parsed about for something like cell phone tracking, but, you know, we've heard a little bit on measures such as social media data scraping, facial recognition, things like that. Um, but I have not seen any clear picture to show how and if these work in general, let alone if they could work in the unique situations that exist in the United States. So I think, um, you know, there, there should be a very big, high level of skepticism for different techniques in general. And then even if a technique is proven to work in certain areas, then there needs to be a lot of examination of the circumstances and methodology that led to be successful to know if you can replicate that. Thanks, Jake. Um, we've got a question. I just want to remind people too, if the raise your hand function isn't working for you, you can also send me a note and say you'd like to ask a question and I can just unmute you. Um, which is what I'm going to do with um, Liza Goitian. She has a question, I think, for Dr. Osterholm. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Osterholm, for, for, for being here and for your, um, your explanation. I, I guess the question that I had is, um, and I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit, but let's just put the civil liberties issues to one side for a second. Um, even if you recognize that testing is not widely enough available, and then even if you recognize that beyond that, so you're only going to know, you know, some fraction of the people who are infected. And then for those people, you know, the, if you were to use geolocation data for contact tracing, you'll get a lot of false positives and false negatives. But some fraction of that will be accurate. And then some fraction of those people will actually comply and, and self-quarantine or change their behavior in some way. Isn't there an argument that even though it's, of course, not a perfect system and perhaps not even a very good system, that it at least could have some effectiveness and some benefit in terms of at least some people um, taking protective measures that they otherwise wouldn't have taken. And isn't that, and again, being a little bit devil's advocate here, but isn't it better to have, you know, at least some people get notification that they wouldn't get otherwise? Well, you know, I, I, I appreciate the spirit of the question because we're all looking for whatever we can do. But I think there are two points to note here. First of all, is that what we haven't really answered yet and no one's really looked at yet. Um, if you just assume, let me just very quickly give you just a very quick math issue because I think that, you know, from the standpoint of all the models that have been out there, you know, they're all black box. I, I have to have a lot of experience with models and they're all based on conditions anyone imposes, et cetera, et cetera. So I have tended to throw all the models out the window and say that that's not what the average citizen on the street can comprehend or deal with. But just take the following model, 320 million Americans, if 50% get infected, which in our group, I mean, of colleagues that I work with, that's not an unreasonable expectation over the next 18 months. In fact, it's on the low side. That's 160 million Americans. If 80% have mild or moderate disease, asymptomatic disease, then at least 20% left, left of which about 10% will likely seek medical care of some kind but not be hospitalized. 10% will be hospitalized. Of the 10%, about half, 5% will receive some intensive care, medical treatment, and about anywhere from one half to 1% will die. So one half to 1% is a very conservative number based on what we're at today. 
But if you look back at the one point, you know, 160 million people, that's 800,000 to 1.6 million people will die yet in the next 18 months. We've only had 20,000 deaths to date. So the reason I bring that all up is because when you look at what's going to have to happen yet in this outbreak, which, you know, even with really very uh, sophisticated uh, population movement issues, we're already seeing in Asia the virus coming back moving substantially even with these kind of measurements that, that, or the measures that we've been taken that haven't held it back. But more importantly is that contact tracing theoretically would have most impact when most of the cases are occurring, which is exactly the time that we can't do it. Everybody who's been involved, New York, Seattle, Italy, when your house is on fire, there is no way to do contact tracing because it's just everywhere. And so part of the challenge has been is getting people to understand that maybe you can cut something off the trough, in other words, down low. But then the second thing is, if you do that, which people haven't really thought through, you just save those cases for the peak, the next peak, which if you do, and say cities like New York, that basically had they had another 10% of cases in New York, they would have gone over the case cliff. That would have taken them into very dangerous territory in terms of ventilator use, et cetera. So we haven't really even thought through in a major way, what are we trying to accomplish here? What is it we want to see at the end of 18 months? I would say the fewest number of deaths, the least disruption to the healthcare system, the most number of healthcare workers healthy and not having gotten ill, and that we don't ruin the economy. And yet I've seen no one propose anything, and we're working on that very thing, down the middle that says this is how you accomplish that. So even here, what are we trying to accomplish with this contact tracing? What if we actually just literally save these cases for the peak, which is then going to come off and actually make things worse, where you'll have less chance of having good health care? So until we answer some of these fundamental questions, which are just basic public health 101, I find that these approaches we're taking are all somewhat superficial and not very meaningful because we've got to really challenge the underlying assumptions. And we have to do this quickly. I'm not suggesting this is a long process because we do have to do something. This is the defining public health event of our lifetimes. And so I don't want to minimize that, but I also don't want to get into this kind of, nobody thought through this. I mean, I had a Nobel Prize lawyer economist last Thursday say, we're going to test 40,000 people a month, or I mean a week in this country. And I said, well, you can't. And he said, well, it's people like you that hold us back. I said, no, it's not me. I'm just a lighthouse telling you there's a shore here. You can't come any further this way, okay? And, and he just didn't get it. So what we need are practical, realistic, and aspirational. They can be aspirational goals, but they can't be this kind of, well, maybe, maybe, maybe. And I think your, the spirit of your question was a very good one, but I'm telling you right now that in, I don't know what that's going to accomplish the big picture of prevention. And if anything, are we just going to move people to the peak and make life worse? So to follow up, is it is it your view then, Dr. Alstom, that there's really no utility that we know yet of, of any of these surveillance methods right now to either stop people from dying or to help alleviate some of the, the pressures that are being placed on the healthcare system, whether it be cell site, GPS, social media scraping, et cetera? No, I think there are. The problem is, are you willing to accept Wuhan-like shutdowns? Are you willing to accept that for 18 months? And even there, as they're now releasing the population back into society, 
into the workforce, look what's happening. They just shut down all the movie theaters a week ago in China. I mean, I can go through the laundry list to what's beginning to happen. And so the challenge we have is what, the only thing we know that really will work is basically a primary shutdown. And I think that most people would tell you that's not possible. So then we have to say, well, then you can't let it just go willy-nilly either because that is going to be the ultimate issue of, of deaths and serious illnesses and bringing down the healthcare system. So some of us are trying to say, let's keep talking about these things, but let's just be practical. But on the other hand, here's what we could do. We have thousands and thousands of healthcare workers right now that have been laid off. They're furloughed. You know what? We have nursing homes all through this country, which are little viral grenades just waiting to blow. Every time a long-term care facility has an outbreak, I can guarantee you that community where that is going to be is many cases because all the from care, then it goes to the hospital. Why are we not bringing healthcare workers back in into that area? Why are we not coordinating a national program right now for the decontamination in 95s instead of throwing away millions of N95s every day and waiting for the supply to try to catch up? Why are we not refurbishing these, decontaminating them, and, 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 and trying to bring them back in a way that actually works? I could go down a laundry list of really practical things right now that will likely save more lives in all this discussion we're having here that nobody is acting on at all. That's the kind of thing right now that I would really pursue. And, and we have a number of them that we're coming forward with about these very issues that say, do these now. And that will have more impact than any of this contact tracing with Bluetooth, et cetera, which is, is I'm just telling you, I mean, I, I, I'm, so just so you know, I'm the one that actually started HIV antibody positive surveillance here in Minnesota. We were the first state in the country to actually make HIV reportable as an infection, not just as AIDS. And we started a major contact tracing program here. We have done really difficult contact tracing. This is so different that it's not going to work as it's been laid out. And it hasn't worked in Asia in any other way other than the total shutdown. And when that's happened, you can do it. But short of that, even Singapore, which we work closely with the group in Singapore, would tell you it's not working right now. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pivot us just a little bit, and I know uh, Dr. Alstom, if you have to, if you have to jump no. off, please do. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so this question was to Jake, but I suspect that um, Greg, you might have some thoughts on it as well. And it's uh, Jake. You said that the government would track every move um, and sensitive information, but the Apple and Google project claims um, it doesn't collect personally identifiable information or user location data. And if we insist that this data isn't shared with law enforcement and data retention rules are to be put in place, um, what would what would your concern still be? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think. A few of the items listed there are, are exactly the type of shields for improper use that we need. Um, so I'll go back over those in a second. But I think just at, at a fundamental level, um, even when you're talking about anonymized data, um, and I'm and I'm not sure exactly how the Google and Apple system would work um, if it wasn't to some degree personalized, because you have to notify people, you have to track who is infected, and you have to be able to notify people accordingly. Um, so I assume it's anonymized, you know, at, at the back end rather than the front end, if that's the intention. Um, there are ways to de-anonymize data. I mean, it depends on the effect, um, you know, the mechanism you use to anonymize in the first place and whether that can be undone. And also um, some location data in itself can be 
very easily used to identify individuals. Like for example, um, you know, if you have a dot that's someone's location um, and they go to a mental health clinic and then they go back home to my house every day, then you can probably tell that it's me. Um, so, you know, I think that even when data is anonymized, there, there need to be a lot of safeguards in place to ensure that that's effective. Um, with that said, I think that um, the type of limits that you mentioned in that question are exactly the ones that we need. Um, trying to differentiate public health purposes and law enforcement purposes is a very important safeguard to make sure that this data um, doesn't get used in a way that it shouldn't um, and that there aren't perverse incentives to overcollect. And that's something we see in other public health um, data collection issues such as addiction treatment data. That's something that can be very useful to medical providers and to government analysis sometimes. There are rules for a lot of addiction treatment information that, that can't be handed over or just given to law enforcement. Um, retention limits so that you have an overall just stop point for when this data is held. Um, that's important as well. So those are exactly, I think, the type of rules that we need to be thinking in place for um, if and when this type of information does get collected. Greg, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, first I'd start by saying uh, Dr. Osterholm's presentation really impressed <laughs> me. Um, we have to start with what's going to be effective and if Bluetooth tracing or location tracking or even um, notifying a person's contacts is not going to be effective, we have to try something else or we have to abandon it because it, it makes no sense to invest uh, resources in things that aren't going to be effective. So assuming that we get to a point where testing um, can be done effectively, um, here's how this Bluetooth system is envisioned to work. Um, your phone will be assigned a random ID. The phones of other people who also download the app uh, are assigned a random ID. When uh, your phone comes within 30 feet of one of these other phones, it will record that random ID right on your phone. So um, once, uh, if you become infected and uh, you're notified that you're infected, then your phone asks you, do you wanna notify all these other people whose random IDs are recorded on your phone that they've been exposed? And the way it's been constructed is, or the way it will be constructed according to the material that Google and Apple have put out, and this is also consistent with what uh, MIT is, is um, uh, doing without the Google Apple uh, interface. Um, you, the person infected, have the decision about whether these other folks get notice that they've been exposed to the virus. They don't know where it happened. They don't know who it was that uh, was infected that they had contact with. They just get a notice saying, hey, according to our information, um, you've been exposed to the virus. And then um, the health authority presumably will decide what the content of that notice is. So what could go wrong with that system? It is pretty well um, um, de-identified, uh, but what could go wrong? Uh, and I'm thinking down the road, um, how society would react. Uh, would an employer say, hey, uh, employees, download this app because you're safer as an employee 
to have in our workspace than the, than the people who haven't downloaded the app. So then the app essentially becomes a mandatory, even though constructed to be voluntary. Uh, what do we do with the people who get notice and all the false positives that are gonna come with that notice? Are they going to clog up the system? Are they going to um, be demanding tests that aren't effective? Or are they going to be demanding tests that are effective, but that ought to go, if they're limited, to people who are more likely to be infected because they were identified by a, a human being as having been in close contact with someone who was infected? So I think there's all these questions. And then what are, what are abusive governments going to do? Are they going to say, hey, you must download the app, and hey, you must turn over your phone to us, uh, and hey, we want it engineered so we get access to the information about who you might have had contact with. Um, so I think there's, there's going to be problems uh, in the implementation, even if we get over the hump that um, Dr. Osterholm identified, which is that we can't even test yet. Well, I think your response is sort of a good segue to a, a new series of questions that I maybe would direct at Deborah concerning abusive governments um, and what has, what have you observed ha that has happened in other countries that serves as either a good or, ma or bad model uh, for, for the U.S.? Uh, thanks so much. And, and just to add maybe to the last round of points around the Bluetooth tracing technologies, I think, I mean, besides the points of whether it's effective and there's questions around, you know, um, how much Bluetooth can actually te test proximity with accuracy, which I think have been covered well, um, is even if the, um, there's anonymity and the data is encrypted, it can also, there's a question of whether the data is centralized, um, if the government's collecting that data or whether it's on the phones and generally decentralized systems seem to be more privacy protecting um, and more secure in the sense that all the data isn't in one place. But there still are issues if the, the different um, devices store the data that those devices themselves could be intercepted and, and, and hacked into and there's known vulnerabilities within the Bluetooth stack. So I think that it's just important to know that no matter what options we're looking at, there are trade-offs. And I think there's this effort to look for this perfect privacy protecting alternative. And that's simply not out there, that there's trade-offs and it's about recognizing different threat models and what's most um, effective for, for this particular problem that we're facing. And in different countries, um, there's been quite a number of proposals. I think each day there's, there's more coming up. Um, I, we were just talking amongst researchers at Human Rights Watch and I heard today even a few dozen more um, proposals that colleagues have shared with me. Um, so I'm just going off the top of my head. I, I heard from a colleague in Ethiopia that the government launched a new platform um, that shares, uh, you know, that people who have been affected would then let the, platform, the government know through the platform. They would get information on where to seek uh, medical resources, uh, be told if they've been in touch with others. So the whole issue of quarantining. But then there's also a feature where you can report on other people, whether they are having illegal gatherings or on like, you know, people in places that I guess in the sense of a time of quarantine or shutdown, it would be illegal in that sense. But you can imagine a group being told you're not allowed to gather for other reasons in various countries. And then also to report on the symptoms that they might be um, exhibiting. So not to say this is necessarily the case in Ethiopia, but you can imagine 
in places where there's xenophobia, where you want to say this group of people um, should be gathering has uh, symptoms or, you know, they're activists and they shouldn't be doing this. So it's opening up kind of a whole other can of worms of reporting on other people. Um, in Turkey, I think there's a proposal where there's a mandatory app similar to the one in China where you have to um, quarantine, stay at home and then uh, show that you have either not been affected or finished your quarantine period to, to leave your house. And there's high fines or even potentially police legal action if you're not, if you don't comply. And in that country, I believe there's, um, your national ID is linked with your phone number, or at least when you register with the government to say that you've been um, infected, they link that with your number and that's how they're able to call you if you've moved out of your home or if you're, if you're seen out um, and you haven't been approved. Um, and then there's also a, a whole range of proposals in countries where they combine other types of, of surveillance, so not just location data, but facial recognition, um, combining with immigration databases. And so I think just to go back to the point we're saying of like really needing to see how, um, we need to look at the effectiveness of any method and plan for the future. But it's also really important that even if there's limited, like even if some of the measures help by getting a few people tested or encourage a few people to stay home um, because they might have been exposed. There's also the creep, the, the data that's being collected and the, um, the highly invasive nature of it. So it's not just your privacy, but your associations, potentially your religious or political beliefs. It's a lot of insight that can be gleaned from people's personal data. And even though there's restrictions in times of emergency, like right now, where if there's a legitimate public health purpose where the measure is necessary and proportionate um, to, the, to that purpose, if the measures aren't actually accurate or useful, then they can't actually pass that necessity test. And then what are we left with afterwards? We have all this data that potentially could only be on people's phones if it's in a privacy proximity tracing way, but it could potentially be in databases that the government holds or in companies that are selling it for various purposes. And so we have to think about what measures we put in place and agree to today under this time of emergency, how they could be repurposed and used for other purposes in so-called normal times, um, knowing from experience and history that emergency measures often last way beyond their initial, um, initial expiry date. Thanks, thanks Deborah. And um, Greg, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Yeah, um, I, I've heard of some countries using um, location information to enforce quarantine. Now you can imagine how um, this could be done on a very large scale. And um, um, just, just think about the providers that have the location information. It's not precise, right? It, it might locate you in a city within a couple blocks, but it will show if a person is quite distant from the place where they're supposed to be quarantining, right? So you could imagine a country saying, well, we want you um, cellular telephone providers to give us everyone's location all the time. That way we can determine um, if these people we've ordered quarantined are a few blocks away from their home or they're, they're out of the quarantine zone and uh, we need to um, follow up with them. That's not, an outrageous thing to predict a, a controlling country that doesn't have a good human rights record would want to do. And the question is, how will providers respond 
to those demands if they come, and I would say in some cases in some countries, when they come? And how would society want the providers to respond? Because you know people are fearful about um, getting uh, the disease and they're fearful about neighbors who don't comply with quarantine requirements. How will societies respond when governments start going down this road? And, and I don't think it's outrageous to suspect that that's the direction some governments would take. Well, I wonder if we can, um, there's an, an, a related question that has come up concerning what surveillance technologies are we seeing other than those related to cell phone tracking? Um, so Deborah, for example, you had, had raised that there are some countries that, you know, in tandem with immigration information and facial recognition, you know, we're, we're seeing sort of a, an, a, a new sort of sphere when it comes to surveillance in the pandemic. Um, Jake, I wonder if you might be able to, to give us a response to that. Yeah, um, a, a couple that I know we've seen some reports on. One is um, social media vetting. Uh, I believe South Korea used that in tandem with other things like cell phone location data. Um, I mean, I, I could see some sorts of things where it's a formal function like tagging your location into a social media post that might provide some value, but that tends to be very um, broad. Like usually you're saying, I'm in Washington, D.C., or I'm in New York, or I'm in Paris, not I'm, you know, in this corner of this park where other people are. Um, so I don't know how much the efficacy provides on that. I'd be much more wary um, if it becomes something that you're actually trying to scan the content of social media posts. Um, something like that would probably require algorithms to work at any sort of scale, and those have proven to be very problematic. Um, for any sort of monitoring purposes in terms of their accuracy to actually analyze content and what it means. Um, the other one that seems to have gotten some mention is facial recognition, I think mostly from China and Russia is where I've seen, but it, it could be being considered by other countries as well. Um, although I've not seen any details of how exactly that works. Um, so that, that's why I remain very skeptical about its effectiveness and efficacy. Um, China touts that it has, you know, a, much more effective and advanced facial recognition system than we do in the United States or other countries do. Um, that might be true. That also might be inflated. We don't really have any independent analysis into how the Chinese government systems works. Um, so I think, you know, if you're looking at uh, an authoritarian government like China or Russia that's says it's using these systems, um, we should very much take with a grain of salt any degree to which they say that they're working. Uh, Greg or, or Deborah, do you have anything you want to add to that? All right, I've got, um, I've got another question here. Um, let's see, I, before we maybe kind of start to, as, as we head closer to the four o'clock mark, um, and maybe we want to, to spend a little time on distilling some, some principles and, and things that we maybe want to learn, but um, it looks like we have one question here about, um, I'm curious if there are concerns about surveillance reforms related to coronavirus, primarily in the U.S., will be used to end encryption um, and allowing broader surveillance in the United States. Um, so, uh, Greg, maybe you want to start us off on a response to that concern. We haven't seen 
um, proposals yet to expand surveillance to deal with this problem. And uh, we're looking out for them. And if one comes up that would undermine encryption, well, I think people will be uh, all over it. Um, people want for whatever is done to be effective. And, and I think we have to start with the efficacy query and then move into the, is it worth the um, civil liberties or privacy cost uh, for, it, for an effective um, uh, proposal? And I don't think we're there yet. I will say this though, that the COVID-19 spread has also exposed some holes, some gaps in current law when it comes to protections. So for example, um, how is location information protected from being provided to governments? Well, the answer is not very well. Uh, there's no baseline privacy statute in the country that controls the disclosure of that data. There are some um, states who have adopted legislation regarding it, but there's no federal rule. And then uh, even when it comes to the disclosure of information to the government, it's controlled by the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, or ECPA. That statute only applies to certain entities. They're entities that are providing uh, communication services to you or remote computing services to you. So they don't even apply to uh, a lot of entities. And then uh, it has exceptions for emergencies and uh, those are interpreted by the providers uh, themselves uh, which is probably a good thing because if they were interpreted by government agencies, the emergency would probably, there probably already have been a mass disclosure of everyone's location on an ongoing basis and historically. Um, but the big gap, I think, is in the coverage of ECPA and in the fact that a provider that is covered by ECPA and can't disclose information except in the criminal context to government or in an emergency context they can disclose it to third parties that are not governmental entities. They can disclose it for commercial reasons to a third party that is then not bound by the ECPA rules, even the weak ones. So that's a gap. We need to think about filling that gap. I wonder if any, um, any of you, Jake or Deborah, might be interested in speaking more to what the law is that currently governs what the government can do with respect to surveillance, particularly when we're talking about fair, fairly sensitive health information. Um, you know, when the pandemic first started, there was a lot of news about sort of extreme measures that um, Benjamin Netanyahu was taking in Israel. And, you know, I think some people are wondering, is that something that we could see here in the States? Um, I can speak more to the to the international human rights norms, which the U.S. should be, um, you know, tied to. But perhaps Jay could speak more about the specifics in U.S. law. But essentially, during times of emergency, there are exceptional measures that uh, governments can take. So obviously, there's, you know, you can take restrictions on the right to privacy and other rights, provided that they are. Um, sorry, that they're necessary in proportion to pursue a legitimate public health objective. And as I was saying before, I think if you start off, and this is similar to what Greg was, was saying around looking at the efficacy, that they need to actually be able to, um, to 
achieve anything. They have to be specific to that public health objective in order to meet the necessity test. And I think we often kind of jump ahead and see, well, what data do we have? How can we use it? Rather than looking at what the, the purpose is and, um, and start there. So um, I can say, I mean, we've seen in, in many different examples, um, ways of just kind of jumping ahead and seeing where um, data can be used rather than the use of it, and then um, kind of using exceptional emergency measures as a catch-all, like the example that was given in, in Israel. Um, but perhaps Jay could speak more to the U.S. context. So in the U.S. context, um, there are some exceptions. Um, I mentioned before that um, things like addiction treatment have uh, provisions specifically written to law and policy that say, well, this data, people give it up for this very select purpose. We don't want to discourage them from doing it out of fear it could go to law enforcement. So there's a wall blocking that off. Um, and that exists in a few other areas. Uh, a couple of years ago, Congress enacted some very light use limits, but, but still did enact some use limits on how certain evidence um, collected for foreign intelligence purposes can be used um, in court in some scenarios. So there's some limits, um, again, albeit weak ones, on that, and there are a couple other examples, but primarily um, when the government has information, um, it is treated as just um, within their purview to use it however they want. Um, you know, again, there are, there are policy limits on sharing access use of data but that, that the government makes, um, but those are usually within the prerogative of the federal government itself. Um, and if you want to limit how data can be used after it's being collected, that usually has to be included as a statutory limit. Um, so I think that that's very much what, if we get to the point where um, surveillance methods related to public health and this pandemic are more strongly considered, I think it's it's very important that you have consideration at the front of, if this is being collected for public health purposes, it should only be used for public health purposes. We have about seven minutes left um, and I don't see any more questions coming through the chat, I just wanted to give each of you an opportunity to, you know, maybe clarify for us what's, you know, what are the ultimate kind of values and rules that we should be looking for governments to adopt both, you know, federal, state and local when it comes to surveillance amid a, a pandemic. So, um, Greg, why don't we start with you? Uh, start with efficacy. Um, if it if the information that is sought is not going to be useful in stopping the spread of this disease or in treating it, then um, don't ask for it. Um, look at um, big data solutions that, that we're confident aren't going to have a negative privacy impact. So for example, um, things like um, what Google's doing to uh, measure the extent to which people are changing their travel patterns based on stay-at-home orders. Uh, that can be useful information for health professionals trying to determine whether those orders are effective, where they need to be uh, made more effective. Um, uh, so I think that we should start with those things uh, and those considerations and um, uh, move from there. Thanks, Greg. Jake, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I think to me, the three overriding principles to consider throughout this process for um, probably many civil liberties issues, but definitely for sure privacy and surveillance is 
um, first primarily to, to look at the efficacy, as Greg said, and that you know, don't just assume that something, because you can restrict rights, rights because you can enact policies, that it's necessarily going to have um, a positive outcome or make a difference, because um, quite often it won't be the case. Um, and I, I definitely very much worry about um, not only right now we're in the midst of this, but if we get to a point where we actually can work down from social distancing, isolation, and other measures, that there will be a real desire to say, do whatever it takes. I don't care just to stop it from ramping back up to it again in the ebbs and flows of this crisis. Um, and I think it'll be especially incredibly important at those points to resist that temptation to just say, throw the kitchen sink at it. I don't care, but actually look at what are meaningful measures. Um, second, narrowly tailor the responses. Um, those are things like limiting access to data, use of data to public health purposes, um, that a lot of the time creating a narrowly tailored policy is, is going to show that you don't actually have a conflict between enhancing privacy and civil liberties and aiding public health. And then third, this needs to be treated as temporary. We need to not let this become the normal. That's a mistake we've made a lot in past crises. And um, hopefully it's one that we will keep a cool head about here that um, if we do enact any measures that limits rights, that limit policy, that they will be seen as having a hard time limit, um, at which point they will end. Thanks, Jake. And um, Deborah, why don't we let you have the last word? Um, I would definitely echo the, the point made around starting with efficacy. I think if, if there's a case where we see that using location data or other types of data are useful actually for and, and effective for this pandemic, I think there's a series of considerations that should be, um, should be put out front before jumping into anything. So one is that any data collection measures should be consensual and on a voluntary basis. They should apply the principle of data minimization, meaning that only the data that's absolutely necessary and adequate um, and relevant to this specific um, goal is collected. Um, information shouldn't be shared with other app users or the public. Um, and there should be very limited sharing, um, or it really shouldn't be shared at all with other government authorities besides the public health officials. Anonymity is crucial, even though we know that um, anonymized data can be de-anonymized. The starting point should always be anonymization. Um, the data should be secure, uh, confidentiality should be respected. And as others have said, um, there should be real time limits that these shouldn't be like uh, measures that last for a long time, but really time bound for and have limited purpose and scope. Um, and finally, I would just say that I think it's really important to not see privacy and, and protecting civil liberties as sort of a um, barrier to effective measures. It's actually what's needed, especially if measures are voluntary, you're only going to get large buy-in if people trust that their data won't be abused or that they will be targeted for various reasons. Um, so I think that's actually a, a positive thing to help make things more efficient. And then finally, um, I would just add that I know in the U.S. context, there, you know, connectivity is widespread, though there still are definitely data uh, digital divides. So that's, that's relevant here in the U.S., but especially in the world, uh, the rest of the world, where something like 67% of people have access to mobile phone, and that's not necessarily even a smartphone. So if we look at um, using location data and cell phone and, and apps as kind of the starting point, you're actually going to exclude a good number of people. And those are often people who are 
really vulnerable to the disease, like older people who might maybe have a phone, but won't necessarily know how to uh, download an app and use it or turn on their Bluetooth so their proximity tracing is, is being used. So I think um, I would never start with the technology, start with the problem and what's the most viable solution at hand. Thanks, Deborah. I think that's a really um, lovely note to end on. Uh, and I just want to say thank you to, to each of you, to Greg and to Deborah. And I, I think I failed to mention that your new position at um, Human Rights Watch, Deborah, is a senior researcher and advocate in digital rights. Um, and also, thanks to Dr. Alter, even though we had to jump off early. Um, and thank you to the many of you who joined us uh, this afternoon. We hope that this was useful and informative um, and will be especially helpful in sort of um, asking the kinds of questions and making the kinds of probes that are necessary as the government continues to um, develop new responses to the pandemic. A recording of this session is going to be available in a day or two on our website on pogo.org. Um, and I also hope that all of you will be looking out in your inboxes for a session that we're going to do next week, next Monday, uh, addressing uh, pre-trial and post-trial detention concerns amid COVID-19. Um, so for now, again, thank you all and um, take care of yourselves. <laughs>